Ben Witherington, author of the Gospel Code, was doing a radio show a few years ago when a lady called in from her car. She was stuck in traffic on the Santa Monica freeway and listening to the show. She said, I'm sitting here in traffic holding on to my crystals and feeling really close to Jesus. And I'm wondering, what is the connection between these crystals and Jesus? Ben's instant response was to say, nothing, except that he made those crystals. We are living in a culture today that loves Jesus, but doesn't know Jesus. Jesus is popular. Jesus even sells cars today. People today love the idea of Jesus, but they don't want to know actually what the Bible says about Jesus, at least not all that much. People want less Jesus, or they want to add more of their own ideas about Jesus, the vision they have of Jesus but not what the Bible says about Jesus. Either way, the book of Hebrews is exceedingly relevant to our culture today. Hebrews teaches us that Christ is the best, so don't settle for less or add more. There's nothing you can add to Jesus Christ, and you certainly don't want to settle for anything less than the full Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ, not your vision of Jesus Christ, not your idea of Christ, but what we're taught in the Scriptures about Christ. I mean, Jesus is almost universally respected today. He is respected as a great teacher or an example. He is, to some, a revolutionary fighting for oppressed people or an ethicist advocating love for everyone. Even in religions such as Islam, Jesus is honored as a great prophet. Everyone thinks they know Jesus, but they don't worship Jesus. He's not better than many other religious figures who have lived in history. Christ is good, but he is not better than all of those. One of my former professors, Dan Wallace, has collaborated with another author, Daryl Bach, to write Dethroning Jesus, Exposing Popular Culture's Quest to Unseat the Biblical Christ. They argue that there are two dominating stories about Jesus today. One story is Christianity. The other story is what he calls Jesus-anity. Christianity is what we find in the book of Hebrews, which is, which is our study for this next year. Jesus-anity is the popular alternative. The center of the story in both cases is Jesus. But they're not the same Jesus. In Christianity, Jesus is the anointed Son of God, who is the unique bridge to God who died as our Savior, He rose again as our Lord, and He lives today enthroned in heaven as our High Priest and our Lord and Savior. And we worship Him, and we've sung to Him this morning. He is our hope. He is our strength. He is alive. And He is Lord. In Jesus' sanity, Jesus is just a man. He's not unique 
even as a man. He lived and he died like other humans. He's a great teacher, he's a great guide, but there have been many good teachers and great guides in life. He's not enthroned today in heaven as our God. He is one among many who have, been, who have taught us on earth. He is not unique. He is not better than many other teachers who have walked this earth. Hebrews is going to address that point blank. Jesus' sanity and correct it with Christianity. For the center point of Hebrews is Jesus as Lord and Savior, prophet and priest. This is a word cloud of the book of Hebrews. One of my students at college this week told me about this website where you can, you can, you can copy a text and then you put it into the website and it does a search and it catalogs it according to the numbers of times that words are used and it gives you this word cloud. So I took all of Hebrews, right, the whole book of Hebrews, and I copied it and pasted it into wordly.net and you get this word cloud, and the way it works is it's a graphic portrayal of the most important words in the book of Hebrews. And so the larger, more prominent words are the ones that are used most often, and so on and so forth. So, of course, when you look at this, this word cloud of the book of Hebrews, you see things like God and priest and faith and blood and covenant and made and one and son and holy and Jesus Christ, all of these are major words in the book of Hebrews. And and I've kind of looked at this and thought, wow, look at all that information there, right? But you will notice, if you look a little closely, that there's one word in there, the word better, which I happen to have circled because I, I don't trust you to see better, you see. And Better is, a, is one of the significant words, and in fact it's a hinge word in the book of Hebrews, because 13 times the word better is used in the, the book of Hebrews as a comparison. This is the whole of Hebrews right here. It is a comparison between what is good and what is going on and what has happened, but what is better. So it's a comparison of Christ with all of these different aspects of life and... and uh, And in the book of Hebrews, he's not like many teachers who have lived. He is unique. He is our great Savior. He is our great High Priest. He is the best prophet. He is the best priest. He is the best of everything. So let's take a quick look today, a survey then of the argument of Hebrews, because what I want to do in these few minutes today anyway is look at the overall argument of the book of Hebrews so you get the flow of that argument and and the way that the author of Hebrews lays it out, and then we'll go back and over the next year we'll study each of the passages. So first of all then, Christ is a better prophet to lead us to a perfect rest. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 begins, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he goes on to describe the Son of God. And if you flip to the end of this section in chapter 4, because the first segment of Hebrews, the first argument of Hebrews ends in 4.13. But if you flip to chapter 4 and verse 9, 
the author of Hebrews concludes this segment by saying, There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest, that is God's rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through, uh, fall through following the same example of disobedience. So the first argument of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than any prophet who ever lived or will live. He reveals God to us. He is the unique Son of God who reveals God to us. He is the revelation of God par excellence to humanity. No one reveals God as Jesus reveals God. He is not one of many prophets and teachers who all deserve equal respect, but He is the unique prophet who leads us to the perfect eternal rest of God, where we can rest forever in the rest rest that God provides for us. Now, that is a powerful beginning argument for the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And it flies in the face of all that our world today wants us to think about Jesus Christ. And we will look at the argument in detail in the upcoming weeks, but, but I want you to just grasp that principle for a minute, the big picture principle. Jesus Christ is a better prophet, or teacher if you will, than any other who has ever lived on earth. He alone leads us to God's eternal rest. No one else can do what he does for. He is the unique son of God who came to reveal God and God's ways to us. That's not a popular concept today. In Jesus' sanity, we're told that it's great to respect Jesus, but Jesus is not better than other religious leaders or teachers. And to say that Jesus is better than other religious leaders or teachers is bigotry. You're a bigot if you say he's better. We are welcome to believe in Jesus Christ, people tell us, as long as we keep him on par with, say, Muhammad as a religious leader. Well, in the Islamic world, currently practicing Ramadan, what we are about to study in Hebrews is in direct conflict with Islam. The two are not reconcilable systems. They are in opposition with each other. And Christianity and Islam cannot both be right. Theoretically, I suppose they could both be wrong, but they cannot both be right. Islam teaches that there there have been many prophets down through history, but there have been five major prophets. Noah is called the preacher of God. Moses is a speaker with God. Jesus is respected as the word of God. Abraham is the friend of God. Islam respects all five, but the final prophet is Muhammad, who is known as the apostle of God. And the creed of Islam, of course, is summed up in the famous statement that is, that is uh, recited by all, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is Allah's apostle. And in a famous hadith, Muhammad said, I have been sent to all mankind, and the prophets have been sealed with me. He is the culmination of all the prophets of God, and Islam venerates him above all prophets. Muhammad is not God in Islam. 
Don't, don't jump to that conclusion. But he is so highly venerated that in practical terms, you can get away with criticizing Allah, but you dare not criticize Muhammad. It is common in one of the major Muslim cultural events to hear the following chant, if Muhammad had not been, God himself would not have existed. Now how do you reconcile Christianity with that? You can't. The two do not reconcile with each other. The co-author of a book I just read on Islam has to use a pseudonym because criticism of Muhammad would be life-threatening for him. That's how seriously people take honoring the prophet Muhammad. Islam has grown so rapidly that it is now the second largest religion in the world with over one billion followers. Nearly one out of every five people on earth is Muslim. Christianity and Islam are on a collision course. And I'm not talking about physical battle and physical warfare. I'm talking about theologically and spiritually. In the U.S. there are currently more Muslims than Methodists. That's just in the United States. Christianity stands in opposition to Islam. Jesus Christ is superior to Muhammad. That's Christianity. There's no way to flip that around and still be Christianity. And our world doesn't like to hear that. Second argument of the book of Hebrews. Christ is a better priest to lead us to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. See, as Christians... We love people because Christ loved us, and we offer them the same mercy and grace that has been offered to us. But it comes through Christ. He is our high priest. And the second section of Hebrews argues that there is no greater priest than Jesus Christ. He's our high priest. He understands our weaknesses. He intercedes for us on the basis of his blood shed on the cross. And it is only through Christ as the unique high priest that we can experience God's grace and mercy when we are in need. Are people in need in this world? Yes. Where will they find the grace and mercy? They'll find it in Jesus Christ. That's what we offer. That's what God offers us. We are sinful people who need God's grace for our salvation. None of us are, any, none of us are anything but sinful people. We all need God's grace and mercy. And Jesus Christ is the perfect priest who provides the perfect salvation through his death on the cross. I'm sure that you're all aware of the resurgence of ancient Gnosticism today. Gnostic writings are popular, as we can see from such famous fiction as the Da Vinci Code. Bestsellers abound, which teach modern Gnosticism as an alternative form of Christianity. 
Is Gnosticism an alternative form of Christianity? No, it isn't, actually. It is not an alternative form of Christianity at all. It is an anti-Christianity. When you go back and you study ancient Gnosticism, you find that people today are being very, very selective about what they use to say that Gnosticism was an alternative to Christianity. Historically, Gnosticism was opposed to Christianity and was opposed by Christians. In Gnosticism, Jesus is often known, in ancient Gnosticism now, Jesus is often known as the laughing Jesus because he's always laughing at the ignorance of human beings, you and me, who don't understand his secrets. In one of the most famous laughing Jesus passages from a Gnostic writing called the Apocalypse of Peter, Christ is laughing at those who are watching the crucifixion take place. He's laughing at them from heaven. Christ laughs at them, he says, because they think he is being crucified. And they are ignorant because they don't realize that he's not dying at all. It's just a substitute body that is there. In Gnostic thought, Judas is the real hero, not Jesus. The Gnostic gospel of Judas teaches that Judas alone understood the deeper knowledge of Christ and so freed him from his earthly body named Jesus. Jesus in Gnosticism has no sympathy whatsoever for our plight, our problems, our struggles in life. He did not die as our substitute for sin, and he surely does not function as our high priest in heaven today. So we're going to deal with that kind of thinking, for the Bible is very clear, the book of Hebrews is very clear. Christ sympathizes with your hurts and pains. He knows, he understands them, and he loves you, and he died to give you what you need in terms of grace and mercy for life now and forever. Christ is our perfect priest who feels our struggles, has paid for our sins, and we can find grace from God in our time of need. I'd rather have that Christ, wouldn't you? Third principle, a third segment of Hebrews, the third argument in Hebrews, Christ founded a better covenant to offer forgiveness forever. We jump to the third section, chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point, the author of Hebrews writes, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. And then you drop down to verse 6 of chapter 8. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been in acted on better promises. In chapter 10, in verse 18, near the end of this section, he writes, Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. His forgiveness is eternal. His forgiveness is forever. The argument of this section is that all men are sinners. We're all sinners. We're all the same. Who must 
who must die, for that is the penalty for sin. Jesus Christ died in our place, so established a new covenant, a new contract in His blood. Through His sacrifice for our sins, we have salvation. Furthermore, unlike all religions where priests must make a continual sacrifice for sin, where you keep going back because they have to sacrifice for your sins, they have to atone for your sins, unlike that, Jesus Christ is the once for all, final sacrifice for all sin. He's infinite in his sacrifice. He did it already. You do not have to go back through priests time and time again to atone for your sins. Christ has done that. He has founded a better covenant. We all need forgiveness for sin. We'll find that forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Not through priests. Not through pastors. Not through anybody. You can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. For He is the one who forgives. And He forgives forever. Whatever sins we've committed. Now that doctrine is in total opposition to every religious system on earth. Because in religions that focus on priests, people have to follow those priests and their rituals to atone for sin. Many religions, there's not even any idea of salvation at all. Salvation from sin is is foreign to Islam, for example. You don't need a savior in Islam. Modern Gnosticism sees no need for salvation from sins. In Gnosticism, like many religious philosophies today, you don't need to trust a savior. You need to trust the inner you. You need to find the inner you. I want to tell you something. The inner me is not pretty. The inner me is ugly. I don't need to find the inner me. I need to find the savior whose grace cleanses the inner me. That's what I need. But in Gnosticism, you're to look inside yourself and find the answers in life. In ancient Gnosticism, in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, for example, knowledge is the key to life, not faith in a Savior. When you know and understand the deeper and secret wisdom of the inner life, then you will be all that you can be. When you understand the secrets of Jesus, then you will be joined to Jesus and achieve the higher life by your knowledge of those secrets of the inner life. Well, what most people don't understand today is that ancient Gnosticism was a male-dominated, rigid, ascetic system of secret thought that stood in opposition to Christianity. It's not another form of Christianity at all. In one of the most controversial passages from the Gospel of Thomas, we have this interchange. Simon Peter said to them, this is from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas that many are talking about today, but don't usually quote this one. Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Well, there's a pleasant thought. Jesus said, look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males, for every female who makes herself male will enter the domain of heaven. Isn't that a great way to be saved? Ladies, you've got to become men. This is ancient Gnosticism. Because it is through this mystical knowledge situation that you become what you are not now. Well, folks, Christ founded a far better covenant than that for males and females equal in Christ, right? 
to offer forgiveness forever for our sins. And I'll take that any day over the silly secrets of ancient Gnosticism. Fourth argument. Christ provides a better hope to encourage us in our current struggles. And we all need hope. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. We'll just use this as kind of the summary of this segment of the argument. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... That's the only way we can go there. By a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good needs, not for Forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look, we all have struggles in life. Life is not always kind, and it is not always fair. But as Christians, we know this is not the end. We know that we have a hope in the future that transcends life in the present. And by faith we look forward to what God promises us in Christ as we struggle with the bad stuff that happens in this world and in our lives. And the hurts and the, and the injustices that happen to us. As Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says in this segment of his argument, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. That's what faith is. It's looking to the future that transcends the present. And if you're in one of those situations today, you need that kind of Christian hope, don't you? Something that's bigger and better and greater and more wonderful than what we have now, because what we have now is tough. So we too look forward to a future we cannot see. I don't know how people go through the stuff of life today if there is no future hope in Christ. I don't know how they do it. If this is all there is to life, it stinks. It's horrible. But it isn't all there is to life. That's the Christian hope. We look forward to something greater and better. We as Christians know that. And our hope is based on our faith in Christ who passed this way before us, according to Hebrews. He's already walked this pathway. He struggled with life. He hurt. He suffered. And he died and he rose again to show us that there is something greater and better coming. Because he's already passed this way before us, we know that he is leading us to his future glory. Christian hope is faith in Christ, not faith in self. Once again, in Islam, like many works-oriented religions, there is no hope. You cannot know for certain that you will go to paradise. From the very beginning of Islam, Muslims have feared for their eternal destinies. We offer them hope in Christ. 
There are five articles of faith you must believe, some say six. But more importantly, there are five pillars of faith you must practice, some add a sixth. If you perform these pillars of faith in life, then you, then you hope that you might be accepted into paradise. But you can't know that. At that point, you look to Muhammad. And Muhammad will either vouch for you or he will not. And if Muhammad vouches for you, you get into paradise. And if Muhammad does not vouch for you, you go to hell. That's one reason why Muslims are so devout in the performance of these pillars. They are very devout. They are very serious. Because it is the only way you have any possibility of getting to paradise. In fact, it's part of the lure of jihad, holy war, because if you die in jihad, that's the one way to bypass You go straight to paradise. The hope that Christ gives us and the hope we offer to all people, including Muslims, the hope we have in Christ, that is so totally different from the lack of hope in other religions. We can't know, they can't know, but we can know by faith in Christ now that our sins have been forgiven, they have been washed clean, and by His grace we will live forever with Him. That's His guarantee. That's the better promise that we're talking about in Hebrews that He says the new covenant is founded upon. And by His grace we have an unshakable hope In the coming kingdom, we serve, as a matter of fact, not out of fear, not out of worry that, man, if I don't give enough money, if I don't do enough good things, if I don't don't practice certain rituals, if I don't, you know, cross my T's and dot my I's just right, wow, boom, I'm gone, I'm I'm headed to hell. We don't serve under that kind of a banner anymore. What we serve under is that God has forgiven us, He's given us His grace, we are going to heaven and we serve out of gratitude. What a difference. What a difference we have in Christ. Fifth principle or fifth segment of the argument, Christ calls us to a better fellowship to strengthen one another in the faith. So the final chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13, focuses on our fellowship in Christ and how we, have to strength, how we use that to strengthen one another in our faith. The supremacy of Christ leads to the seriousness of discipleship out of gratitude for all He's done for us. So the doctrine of Christ leads to the doctrine of service. We are going to serve. We are going to care for one another. We are going to work. But it is not so that we can get to paradise or heaven. It is so that we are expressing thanks to God for His love to us. Holiness of Jesus leads to holy living. The theological and the practical are pulled together at the end of the book of Hebrews to show that if we truly believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will show that by how we live. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Great passage. We all remember this passage. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and yes forever. Right? 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What if that wasn't true? What if that wasn't true? And all the religions of the world tell you it isn't true. What if it wasn't true? What have we got? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing to hang on to. Nothing to believe in. If Jesus Christ is not the same yesterday, eternity past, down through history, today, and forever, we've got nothing. We have absolutely nothing. We have no faith worth following. So, you see, these are the stakes that the book of Hebrews lays, puts out for us. This is the line in the sand that the author of Hebrews is going to argue about. Christianity is dead if Jesus is not Lord and Savior. You can't take Christ out of Christianity and have Christianity. If we do not hold to Christ, we have no hope in Him. He's the foundation of our faith. We dare not add anything to Him. We dare not take anything less than Him. Because then we don't have Christianity. Now that is both the offense because people are offended when we speak of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That is the offense of the gospel, but it is also the hope we have in the gospel as Christians. The world does not understand our position, but the author of Hebrews makes it clear, don't go back to anything less than Christ, Jesus Christ, and all he is. There are five famous warning passages actually sprinkled throughout the book, and so we have to mention those because they're part of his framework of argument. Five warning passages. Each warning passage warns us not to fall back into anything less than Christ as best. And if we fall away and compromise the message of Jesus Christ, we're no longer practicing Christianity. So many people today would have us think that you can be a Christian but not believe in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as Son of God and Savior of men. And that is not true. Hebrews warns us five times, and we'll look at them in the course of the argument of, of Hebrews, five times not to fall into the trap of turning away from faith in Christ alone for our salvation. He is the only hope to get you through the stuff of this life. Don't fall back. Don't turn away. Those are the warnings of Hebrews. In 1993, the uh, Parliament of World Religions, of, uh, of the world's religions, excuse me, was held in Chicago. The gathering was global, obviously, and designed to seek how, we, how they could make all religions relate to one another in unity. Pastor and author Erwin Lutzer attended that parliament to try and understand how the world was thinking. And he summarized their doctrine. It was summarized in these, uh, these four principles of the Parliament of World Religions. First of all, they said we must speak of religious traditions rather than religious truths because there is no real truth. It's just your tradition. Second, no religion is superior to another. Third, as we move away from religion to true spirituality, that's when we are united. And fourth, proselytizing or what we would call evangelism, is bigotry. Now, since 1993, certainly, and probably before that, I think you can see how these kinds of ideas have permeated our culture, right? 
They've permeated our culture. This is the creed of our culture today. No wonder then Christianity is rejected, and no wonder then it is so difficult for Christians to share their faith when even the right to share faith is considered bigotry. At a gathering I was involved in a a few years ago, that question was raised. They said, basically, if I disagreed with, it was an interfaith thing, there was Muslims there and others, if I disagreed with Muslims, then I was bigoted, right? I said, look, love, you can love somebody and still disagree with them. And that's what Christianity calls us to do. Love doesn't mean that you have to agree. Love means you love somebody anyway, even though you say what they think is wrong. But that's not acceptable in our culture anymore. And we'll address some of those questions as we study the book of Hebrews. How do we share our faith with those who reject even our right to share our faith? If Christ, as the book of Hebrews says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we don't have to be afraid of the creed of our culture, but we have to challenge the creed of our culture in the love and the truth of Jesus Christ. Erwin Lutcher suggests four ways that Christ can be related to the challenges of other religions. First, he says there are people who advocate pluralism. Pluralism says that all religions must be accepted as equally valid. Of course, the problem is if if all are equally true, then none are true, right, in the end. Second there is inclusivism. Inclusivism says that Christ may be the best possible idea, but that salvation and hope can come and ideas can come through other religions as well and they're just all included. Third, there is selectivism. Selectivism says that religious ideas are sort of like a smorgasbord and you go and pick and choose what you like from all the religions. So we pick and choose at the cafeteria of religions and we pick and select those things we like from each one. And finally, there is exclusivism. Exclusivism says that Christ is not only the best but he is the only way to God. And that is when we get into trouble, isn't it? It can be any of the other three, but the minute you cross that line, you're in trouble in our culture. And yet the book of Hebrews says, that's Christianity. That's Christianity. Christian Christ is exclusive. Salvation and hope can only be found in Jesus Christ. And that's not popular, but it is true. Jesus said, I am, what? The way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what we offer people. And that's the hope of eternal life. There is no other way. After all, Hebrews teaches us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, it's a challenge today to share your love and truth with people. To show that we love them. We're not out to hurt people. We're not out to put people down. 
but we want them to understand that real hope and real peace and real rest comes only through the greatest of all prophets, the greatest of all priests, the one and only sacrifice for sin, our Lord and Savior, your Son, your unique Son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, help us to share your love and grace this week in your name. Amen. Hymn number 